Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Black. In today's episode, we'll be exploring the double-wide, unfiltered history of rolling papers. Whether classic or king-size, hemp or rice, flavored or au naturel, rolling papers have been the most common delivery method for the average cannabis and tobacco smoker for generations now. In fact, cigarettes and joints are so commonplace in modern society that we never really stop to think about where or when they were invented and how they've changed over the centuries. But the origin and evolution of the rolling paper is actually quite a fascinating topic. And who better to discuss that topic with than a man who's been referred to as a walking encyclopedia of rolling paper history. He's the founder and CEO of Raw Rolling Papers and HBI Distribution, Mr. Josh Kesselman. Josh, welcome to Canthropology. Oh, thanks for having me, man. It's always fun. For, I love talking about rolling papers, so for me, this is great. <laughs> well, I'm extremely grateful to have you on the show, uh, not just because of your extensive knowledge on the topic, but also because I realize what an extremely busy guy you are. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're actually on your way to Spain as we speak. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I'm on my way to um, to go back to Alcoy to make more rolling paper. <laughs> cool. Well, I appreciate you making time to speak with us. Um, before we delve into all the dates and details and everything that I want to uh, get into, um, I would like our listeners to learn a little more about you uh, and your company and how you became the rolling paper king that you are today. Sure. I'm sorry about the noise in the background. I'm literally in an airport lounge on my way to Spain. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, briefly, brief, tell us about your background a little bit. Well, sure. See... I fell in love with rolling papers at the age of like five years old. And there's a reason why my dad used to do magic tricks with his rolling paper. He had an old Spanish brand called Marfil Arroz, and he would pull it out of the pack and light it on fire and throw it in the air. When I, this is back when I was five. And all the kids at the table would just be like, wow. As he would, uh, I got to make it clear, it would vanish. It was a rice style paper. And this type of paper burns exceptionally clean. So he would light it on fire and throw it up and it would just Badish. And you would have that moment where you were thinking in your mind, like, wow, there really is magic. Magic's real. Like, and you <laughs> imagine this whole world of possibilities. So for me, I fell in love with rolling papers back then at five. So as time went on, I became a collector of rolling papers and I was just so enamored with them for so long. Any chance I got, I would buy whatever pack I saw that was different. And in the 90s, I put my collection online. I was one of the first people uh, to put my collection online. I had one of the larger collections in the world at that point. And that, that kind of brought me into the world of rolling papers because there were other collectors and we all began talking and sharing and trading and, and that kind of led me into the path of business. And uh, Raw actually wasn't your first foray into the rolling paper business, right? You had a brand called Elements as well. Yeah, Elements was actually, okay. So I had my collection and I opened up a tiny little store while I was still in school in Gainesville, Florida. And during this time, and again, my collection's online, one of the guys said to me, one of the other collectors said, there's a man coming from Alcoy who has reopened what's basically the oldest rolling paper factory in the world to its lineage. Um, the, and 
Um, he's looking for someone to sell his product in America. You should meet him. I was like, sure. So I go and meet the guy, a very nice older Spanish man named Jose Emilio. And Jose is, is talking to me and in my terrible broken Spanish. And <laughs> I'm very young at that point, like 20, early 20s. And he's looking at me, like sneering at me. And he finally says to me as he's barely talking to me, Josh, why do you even care about rolling papers? So I told him the story of my dad and the Marfil Arroz. And Jose Emilio lit up and said, Josh, I made Marfil Arroz. My father made Marfil Arroz. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, all on my wife's side had all made Marfil Arroz. Wow. And we, just, we thought it was just incredible. Like what a coincidence and fortuitous, or if you want to put it like the stars aligning, we decided we were going to bring it back. Now, we couldn't call it Marfil Arroz because the brand had been taken when the factory was bankrupted, which is a whole other story. So I decided to name it Elements after the elements that are used to make this beautiful rice paper. And that was one of the first ones we ever launched. So, yeah, Elements came way before Raw. Elements was like 96, I think. Um, it's just, yeah, these things, these things have been going on and on. Yeah. <laughs> and I also made Juicy J's and so many other papers. See, the thing about making rolling papers is you're always trying to find, you're always trying to innovate, you're always trying to create, you're always trying to make something better. So you end up launching brand after brand after brand after brand after brand, and each one is different, each one's special, and each one gives you a bunch of knowledge. And at some point, like just like a painter, any kind of artist, you have acquired enough knowledge and understanding where you're ready to paint or make your opus. And for me, that was Raw. Wow. Well, so tell us, when and how did Raw get started? Well, the idea for Raw was, I think about 1993, I, in my little store, a customer, any customer that came in, I would bring whatever they wanted. And one of them asked me to get this particular brand of natural cigarettes. And he told me how it was natural, so much better. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I was like, all right, cool. So I brought them in for him. And back then, it was hard to get this particular cigarette. And he came and he comes in and I sell him his pack. And he, he said, hey, Josh, you want one? I said, sure. He opens it up. And in my mind, after he'd been telling me it was natural and all my knowledge of rolling papers, I thought it was going to be this beautiful, natural brown paper. But instead, it was still a bright, white, bleached paper, just like anything else I'd ever seen, full of chalk and all those things. And I was like, oh, man, really? So I was just so surprised that it was a white cigarette that that's when I realized through my collection and all my friends' collections, I had never before seen the type of paper I was envisioning, which was this translucent, natural brown paper that was not bleached and had no chalk and was made in like this particular way that would be as natural as realistically possible. I wanted to bring it back. So that's when the idea came was in 93, but I couldn't launch it until 2004, 2005, because I had to, no one would listen to me. I was just a guy with a store. I'm trying to explain to these mills what I want. They're all laughing at me. So again, you have to kind of make your bones and get people to trust you and kind of build up knowledge and trust and understanding and money and build all of that up until finally now people are willing to listen to you. Now people are willing to talk to you more. And you take it and you, I risked it all to create raw. It, I had to buy so much of the bulk material that it was a true risk of everything. I would have gone bankrupt if it hadn't worked. But I had to do it and we did it and it freaking worked. <laughs> I knew it would work. I knew people wanted it. And it just, I had to make it for them, you know? Yeah, I, it sure did work. Holy cow. <laughs> Dominate. Yeah. Totally took over the market by storm. Um. And, you know, we should probably mention that uh, part of the reason for that is the fact that you started your own rolling paper distribution company, uh, HBI. Can you can you talk to us a little about that? Um, HBI was really um, partially it was, you know, I, I come from a retail background where I started in retail 
And I used that. I set up a wholesale business trying to cater to get the things into stores that I thought were missing from stores. They were missing from my own store, things I had trouble getting and things that people really wanted that were more unique and different. So it wasn't like trying to go up against the big distributors. It was more like trying to fill the gaps that they were missing. So, for example, back then you could barely get a good selection of rolling paper. You really couldn't get. So I started carrying every single rolling paper that was ever made. And I would work with my friends in Europe in order to bring over um, lots of different, any kind of rolling paper that was exotic. Brands that didn't even matter like much about it. Some of them, some of them had no English on it. It didn't matter. It was exotic. It was different. We're talking about 1997 right now. And it was, uh, and people just wanted it. I also found that the stores could do better because I could get them a box of rolling papers for like a box of 50 rolling papers. And each one had 50 leaves. And that box might cost the store, might cost me um, $5. And I would sell it to the store for like $9, make $4. And I was happy. And the store now, if you think about it, it's a 50 count. That's costing them like what, 25 cents a booklet? And they're still selling it for the same $1.25 or something. So the store is jumping for joy. I'm happy because it's a beautiful paper. And for me, $4 is a great margin. And everybody's winning except for the big old guys who hated me. <laughs> you know? yeah. And um, so but it was it was all things like that. And then it gave me a chance to bring over all these cool rolling accessories and make my own. Like I used, I gained a lot of knowledge over those years of distributing just anything weird I could get from Europe. And I would make my own different things. Um, I, I would do things like Rizla had made a roll box. Um, this really cool automatic rolling box, but it was only for a single white paper. So I would take it and modify it. I would make a 79 millimeter for one and a quarter. And I made a king size automatic rolling box. And we would just go off like that, like tips. Um, tips were something I used to make when I was a, a very young smoker in order to keep the smoke away from my face because just thanks to my heritage, I got big lips. So then I started packaging tips just because I was tired of cutting up business cards and rolling for people. And I said, you know, I can make a business out of this or not. I can make a product out of this. And I started making tips. And in America in 1997, I thought I was fucking nuts. Like, what the hell are these things? <laughs> you know, I'd work hmm. with print shops in Phoenix and we would make these tips and, and I'd cut the paper to make it where it would roll smooth because I had no paper. So I would, I would, I would cut it, I'm not going to tell you which way, but a special way with the grain to make it where it would roll smoother. And people would try to copy it. And if I was if I was lucky, they would just cut it completely wrong so that their tips would square hmm. and mine were always smooth because they didn't understand what they're doing. They're copying. They don't get it, you know? And so I ended up making a business of tips for America and convincing everyone to use tips because it's so much easier to roll and it makes for so much of a better smoke and saves you so much money. And I used to have to pitch to people over and over again, why you need to use a tip, why you need to use a tip, why you need to use a tip. Well, the, the invention of tips led to so many other things. Like um, when I, start, I started, um, my, the first tips I ever sold, I think, were actually even earlier than that. It was back in 93 in my store when I would cut them for people and I would do all these different things. But tips led to cones. It led to so many other things that we could do. And cones was another one of the things that we were able to, to propagate. Because, you know, some people couldn't roll. So back in my store in 93, I used to um, roll up uh, what we called a, a two-lip. Uh, and we'd call them two-lips verbally, but it was actually called a two-lip because it had mm. two different gum lips. And it was basically the the, the uh, predecessor of the modern cone. And then my friend Arthur managed to set up a cone factory in the late 90s. And then we were able to really mass-produce cones together. And we still work together to this day. So, yeah, like all, all these different things, all these different rolling products were able to really get it out there. The cool thing was, like, I was able to, like, live my passion, Bobby, where it was, like, teaching the world to use pokers, 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like I never thought I would be able to do things like that. I never thought I would be able to give classes on porosity to the world to teach them. Like, I can't believe you guys are going to listen to me talk about porosity and why huh. it's important. Like yeah. I, I'm able to do videos where I talk about these things and teach people about stuff that I never thought anyone would give a shit about. Like if you would have told me in 96, Hey man, someday people are actually going to give a shit when you talk about porosity. I'd be like, really? Like they're not just going to fucking tune me out and think I'm like a talking, I'm, I'm reading stereo instructions. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you know, and uh, they, and the consistency of paper, they're going to really care. Like, yeah, they're going to care. Like, really? <laughs> I can be like, and then I taught people about chalk and that really blew up some of the big guys and got them so mad at me, Bobby. Um, you know, I learned that people began adding chalk to cigarette paper because then when the paper burns down, it leaves the white chalk behind. It gives you the appearance of a white ash. Right. And makes you think the paper is higher quality. Because look, all my stuff's burning with this beautiful white ash. And you don't realize it's just leaving behind some chalk dust. Huh. Now, nothing wrong with smoking chalk. I'm not going to say that there's anything wrong. But I feel like consumers should have should know that they're smoking chalk. And they should have the choice of whether or not they want chalk. So like when I make my raw paper, obviously I'm not going to add fucking chalk to it. And then people will complain, oh, I don't hate raw. It burns black. I say, okay, let me teach you why it burns blacker than than that paper you might have been using before this. Let me teach you about chalk. Did you know that some papers might have as much of a 40% by weight calcium carbonate content? Calcium carbonate is chalk, dude. What do you think that is? And you can have that if you want, but I don't like the taste of chalk. I find that I don't like the way that it reacts with me, me personally. So I'm not going to make my, my main papers with chalk. If you want papers with chalk, I'll make you papers with chalk. That white ash is so important to you. I will make you a beautiful paper. It'll have a beautiful amount of chalk. It burns <laughs> down. That white shit behind. But I don't want to smoke that thing. Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, that goes to like what you were saying about um, when you were talking about the paper, how your papers, uh, how all the papers up until yours had been white, and people assumed that that meant purity, and that was yeah. a symbol of purity, but it actually isn't necessarily purity. The same thing with like sugar. Raw sugar is brown, but white sugar, you could say it's more pure, but really it's just bleached. I mean, how is that? Is that necessarily better? I wouldn't think so. Yeah, same thing with flour and so yeah. many other things. Like a whole wheat flour, we know it's better for us. It has more flavor. The white flour is basically just fucking sugar. <laughs> you know, it's our body that we sugar and it's not good for us at all. It's just, um, no one had really done it with paper because nobody gave a shit. No one even knew. No one even understood, Bobby. When I was trying you know, when I was first teaching these things to people, they would look at me like, I, you know, what are you talking about, chalk? And so I used to do these funny videos explaining it. And then little by little, people caught on and they understood. And then suddenly it changed the marketplace, which you can imagine. If you were a well-established brand, right, and you got your factory set up and you're making these chalk papers, and then this little fucking annoying guy, Josh, comes out there telling people about the tricks of the trade, you're going to really hate me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and they do. Of course they do. But uh, I just feel like people need to know. I think, like, they don't, it's not a right. They, they just deserve to know. They deserve to understand what they're smoking and make choices based on it. Absolutely. Well, uh, you obviously have a huge appreciation for the tradition, for the history, and I know that you produce raw in a traditional style in a traditional location. Can you please yeah. explain to us uh, the process and the place where, where the papers are made? Okay, well, raw really is made in Alcoy, Spain. That's where that's all raw rolling paper is going to ship out of there one way or another. And Alcoy is the birthplace of rolling paper. So this is where um, Columbus, and you want to know about the history, Columbus came from Spain. You have to go back to Columbus with these kind of rudimentary cigars 
They were wrapped in a combination of palm and tobacco and tied with a string. And he comes back from the quote-unquote new world. I mean, Columbus was honestly a piece of crap, as we all know. But he did come back with these cigars, and they land in Spain, in Seville. And the process of people smoking cigars in Europe begins. Now, cigars do something called turning. You can only smoke them normally, about halfway. And then the aristocrats would throw it on the ground and discard it. And the peasants would run up and scoop up these, these used cigars and then open them up and re-roll the tobacco in used newspaper. And even then, every puff was so precious that they began holding in the smoke. And this is where all cigarettes come from. So the first real rolling paper, I guess, would be newspaper, like used newspaper. Yeah. But this thing of smoking in paper began right then on the streets of Seville and Valencia. And it made its way up to Alcoy. Alcoy at the time, you have to understand, was the paper-making capital of all of Europe because the Moors had brought paper to Alcoy and set up the first paper mills in that particular region ever for Europe was there in Alcoy. And they and founded Alcoy, right? I mean, the Moors basically settled, founded it. Well, they settled it. It, it was there before. The, it was there before the Moors. They basically, um, the importance of Alcoy is that it's a very strategic spot to hold. You had to pass through Alcoy if you were going between Valencia and Alicante, both of which were key port cities that would have been very important back then. And the reason why um, Alco Alcoy was also very fertile and had great water. Alcoy was set up for paper just because it had, at the time, very strong running water, and yet it was also dry. You could use the water to make paper, power the power factories, and do everything you needed to do, and yet you had the natural dryness to dry it. So it was actually, for its time, it was perfect for making paper. We don't run, the water does not run as, as much as it used to, so obviously we, we have, everyone's had to adjust. But it's, um, but Alcoy is perfect, or was perfect for making paper. Okay, so there's this practice of rolling this used cigar tobacco in newspaper to smoke it, and that practice makes its way from Seville over to Alcoy, which is the paper capital, and so then what? So now you have this combination of tobacco and paper, and voila, it all comes together. Well, the Alcoyanos take one look at these people smoking and use newspaper, and they know that that's not healthy. They know, especially back then, that newspaper is not something you would want to smoke in any way. And they decide to make a special paper just for smoking. And that was really what I consider to be the world's first rolling paper from Alcoy. And so they marketed back then, by the way, as hygienical to tell you that it had no lead, had no mercury and all these other things that yeah. might be, might be in the newspaper. And it was bright white to show you that it was pure and not newspaper. And that is why rolling paper up until raw was pretty much only white. <laughs> that would all goes back to something goes back to freaking Columbus times. Wow. You know? Yeah. And so yeah. I, I know Columbus was around, the, you know, the 1500s. And I, and I believe yeah. the paper uh, that paper industry began in Alcoy much earlier, like around 1154 or something like yeah, that. Much earlier, so when did much the first earlier. rolling paper official rolling paper come out was it was it the was it that company Pepe or or was that afterward no 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 before like long before Pepe or Pai Pai if you want to say it right oh the, my apologies it's okay we've been making rolling paper when I say we I mean we humans have been making rolling paper in Alcoy it, it's hard to document when because branding didn't start for much later interestingly enough the first I think it was eight trademarks ever filed in the entire country of Spain when they opened up 
a trademark registry for the country of Spain were all rolling papers because we, we meaning the Alcoyanos, had been making so many different rolling papers even up till then. So the earliest thing I've ever seen about rolling papers was in the 1600s. Um, I can't, again, the, the history on it is not so clear, but the earliest I've seen is 1600s um, yeah. that they were making rolling paper in Alcoy. It's likely 1500s even before then, but I've seen 16s. And the earlier ones were just giant sheets. They weren't branded. You just bought paper. And then it would be uh, folded up into a little square and tied with a string. And these were big sheets. And then you would the fold lines of the square were what you would tear off to use for your sheet. And everybody would share paper with each other wow. like that. Brands like uh, Papai, which I believe is the oldest rolling paper brand in existence, um, that one t traces its roots back to, uh, I think, early 1700s. Um, maybe it's in the mid 1700s. Yeah. I think 1703 um, was the date I saw online, but I don't know if that's if that's right. Yeah, then this, it might be right. Yeah, there's it's history gets a little fuzzy on these things. Yeah. But what from what we know, because people change things also, and they're just things are you know lost. Yeah. But we humans have been using rolling paper for a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> Can tell. Okay, so after Pi Pi, uh, the second oldest rolling paper company that. Uh, launched and operated out of Alcoy was one that pretty much everybody would be familiar with, which is Bamboo. Uh, according to what I've read online, Bamboo opened their first paper factory in Alcoy in 1764, but that was originally for making paper for Bible pages. Um, it wasn't until the late 1800s that they switched over to making rolling papers and it wasn't until 1907 that they actually trademarked the bamboo name. Now, I seem to remember you saying that you actually uh, are operating out of the one of the original bamboo factories in Alcoy. Is it the original? Because I've seen the pictures in Alcoy of like the ruins of that like castle ruins and stuff. But that's not the factory you're talking about, obviously, right? Because that's that's just ruins. Yeah, no, we don't operate out of the actual building. Um, okay, so there's a town called Alcadia de Aznar, and that's where the bamboo factory was. We call it the bamboo factory, but it was actually called Papeleras de Unitas. Now, the building is still there, and the sign is still up. And I might end up with the building back, because Alcadia wants us to move back over there. But it's um, what happened was, in the 1980s, this factory, this big factory, was essentially bankrupted through litigation. And in the course of bankruptcy, they, and this is all my understanding of it, maybe I'm wrong with some of this stuff, but when it was, when they were sued into bankruptcy, basically a lot, everything was liquidated. And their competitors from Barcelona came up and they'd given an order saying, let not one machine stand, let not one seed remain, because they didn't want them to come back. And uh, one particular man, uh, Jose Emilio, uh, was one of the factory managers, and he made a deal to buy some of the old machines uh, at the last moment before the factory was really closed. And so he bought several machines, um, ones that uh, the Barcelona thought had no value because they were so old and antiquated and only did specialized papers. And he basically took those machines and set up the what we guess would be the next, the predecessor of the, the with the remnants. And that was Iber Papel. Iber Papel at first was in Muro de Alcoy and um, on this old factory that was on the edge of a cliff. It was really beautiful. And that, um, now we've moved to, a, to a, another area of Alcoy, but that is us. So our lineage 
goes back to um, Papelidus. We have nothing to do with Papelidus, but the fact we have machines from Papelidus, we have employees from Papelidus, you know, we have all the people. So I mean, Dallas, many of them have retired, but now we have their kids and their grandkids. So our lineage goes back to that factory, and that factory uh, lineage goes back to all the way to Jose Laporta. It goes back to Evora and all of the old um, factories that remain uh, in Alcoy. So the, like we're the last ones, so we kind of have to hold the, the, fl- the candle, you know, the flame. So the original, the original factory is in ruins. It's still in ruins, and it's, that's what it is, right? And then so the and, – and when did this happen with the bankruptcy and stuff? How long ago was that? The factory that the big bamboo, the big factory, um, we call it the bamboo factory, but keep in mind it's really called Papelaris Reunitas, was bankrupted in the 1980s. And then, so, so so um, you don't, you're not operating out of this exact factory, you're, you're just operating nearby with some of the machinery and employees with the machine and the people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of the original employees, can you please tell our listeners who the bamboo-neras are? The bamboo natas were women who made bamboo rolling papers in around the 1920s up till the um, until the 1980s, even um, when the factory was bankrupted. Uh, bamboo used to be the brand of Alcoy. They used to call it the Mark of Alcoy. Bamboo is not an Alcoy brand anymore. When the la- the big factory in Alcoy was bankrupted in the 1980s, um, the Mark was they destroyed the factory, and the Mark was taken from Alcoy. And it just became a private label brand, essentially, where it's not um, it's not it's not Alcoyano anymore. So bamboo, as we see it nowadays, is homage to the original bamboo. The bamboo natas used to be women who would make bamboo rolling papers. I still have some of them that work at the factory in Alcoy to this day. Not very many because they're much older. But <laughs> they, they still enjoy their work. And yeah. they don't want to leave, you know? I, so I learned about them from your video online is why I asked you because uh, I, I got oh, a kick yeah, out yeah. of it that uh, that these there young, be hundreds of them. These there beautiful young girls were sitting there working, making rolling papers hundreds and all the boys them. wanted to date them, right? They, yes. And they would and they would take pictures of them <laughs> together all the time. Oh, security signs. <laughs> well, that seems like a perfect opportunity for us to cut away for our first commercial break. But uh, stick around, everyone, because we'll be right back with more on the history of rolling papers here on Canthropology. Welcome back, everyone. Our topic on this edition of Canthropology is the history of rolling papers. And once again, our guest is rolling paper collector slash historian and founder and CEO of Raw Rolling Papers, Josh Kesselman. So, okay, so obviously uh, we've established that rolling papers were created in Spain. Spain were the main producers. But at some point, uh, the focus kind of shifted to France. And if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, I believe that began with a Frenchman by the name of Alexandro Rizlet de Crampton Lacroix. Is that is that mm-hmm. am I saying that right? Um, yes, it, we believe that's how it did. It was really the um, Napoleon who um, it was Napoleon's fault. Uh, basically, he had he sent troops into Spain and they came back. They picked up the habit of smoking and rolling from in Spain and they came back to France and brought it back with them. And the story is, and who knows which part of it is correct. Is that um, Pierre Lacroix, what we colloquially refer to him as, 
saw this and he had a fine paper mill of some kind and began making um, the same kind of paper that we were making in Spain in France. Yeah. And his, so he started doing that, I think in the around the 1660s and it was, but it wasn't until like 1736 that he actually uh, purchased a mill and incorporated his company, LaCroix Rolling Paper, um, which from what I read, was actually issued a license by Napoleon himself to produce rolling papers for the French army. Yes, I've read all this too. And then I also read something from the family history that said that that was all incorrect. So I don't <laughs> know if that part of it's true or not, but it's but it's a beautiful story. And that's what they say in there. It might not be right, but it's a beautiful story. So I'm not sure how much of that part is 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 correct. But but somehow, one way or another, it seems, one way or another, there's what we call Rizla rolling paper, which are very popular in the UK and I don't think they're sold in America anymore. They um, they have a, a beautiful long history through France. Yeah, you know, part of the fun uh, that I've uh, I've learned in in doing this podcast and becoming uh, my efforts to become a cannabis historian is is just fun trying to you know figure out the fact from fiction and the legend and lore from the reality because there's so many. You know, like you said, history is kind of blurry in a lot of places. And yeah, it's, very it's kind of fun digging around, seeing what you can find, though, you know? I know. I know. <laughs> it's a it's a beautiful thing. But yeah, the best rolling papers are really going to come out of France and, and Spain, in my, in my humble opinion. Yeah. Both countries make amazing rolling papers. Yeah, and in the 19th century is when the competition really started to pick up, it seems like. In, in 1822, you had a Frenchman named René Corentin Ballore and his brother uh, Guillaume, who opened a paper mill on the banks of the Odette River to produce rolling papers. And they called their company OCB, which stood for O for Odette River, C for Cascadec, which is the town they were in, and Ballore, which was their last name, right? Yes. And Jean Bardot was also, he was even more important to uh, to rolling papers his mills still stand to this day he um he was very good at innovating and he would he would uh draw the power of the river in order to power his mills and um yeah some of the, the innovations that happened in the early days were the ones that were the most um the ones that still kind of stick in my mind to this day yeah well jean bordeaux is is uh he founded jb papers uh in about uh he's the one who introduced the rolling paper booklet in 1838 um and the interesting thing about his company was that people mistook the little diamond shape that separated his initials jb and ended up uh calling the papers job or job papers (laughs) yeah no actually the booklet was created by a dominican monk outside of alcoy Really? So I, I know. Yeah, I know the job story you're talking about. And I think that's part of it's a beautiful piece of history. But the way that we understand it was a a Dominican monk of the Franciscan order uh, created the world's first rolling paper booklets and uh, for his parishioners. So they have an easier way to carry papers. And that made its way up to Alcoy. And of course, the booklets were produced. And wow. so I think booklet, bookletting goes back a little further than the 1800s uh, from because I've seen booklets older than that. So I, 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 wow. I'm not sure about, but the interesting part about with um, one way or another, I don't know which one of them did it, but you're, you're going into the land of interleaving and the land of interleaving. That was uh, like 1904, where that was basically you pull out one sheet, the next one comes after it. There was also the, the professor, the famous professor who, um, what was his name again? Saul David Modiano. He was actually Jewish and he um, created a rolling paper with no gum Um it's uh, to this day. It's, I, I still produce them under the Modiano brand, Club Modiano. So there's been so many innovations and so many um, creations 
that, you know, everybody's trying to innovate. Everyone's trying to create, but there's only so much you can do. I hope that I've earned my place in history with, with Raw and all the crazy things we've done with that. And, you know, all the cones and all this stuff. But you never know what, what get, which part of history gets carried forward because the people who carry it forward are often the victors. <laughs> yeah. See, now I'm glad you told me about that the, the booklet thing because this is why I have someone like you on the show because not everything you read online is something you can believe. Uh, and it's good right. to n- hear from someone who really has done research on this to, to you know, flesh out the, the proper details. And regarding the strip of gum that you're talking about, you know, the adhesive, um, that was now – I read that that was introduced by uh, Rizla. Is that true? I don't know if that's true or not on that one either. <laughs> because there was adhesive before that. The question is, I'm not sure if they did the first adhesive or their first adhesive. But uh, the gum, the acacia gum, goes back to the Moors. The Moors were the ones who brought the acacia gum to Alcoy. It's, um, it's, it's also called, I don't know if you know much about acacia gum, it's called gum Arabic. It's not, it's not grown up there. It's something they literally brought with them from their homeland. It, um, we, we still get our gum from uh, from the general area. It basically comes from like the Ethiopia Senegal region, but it all comes from the the, uh, the acacia tree. Now the acacia tree is there's different varieties of it. Some give off the gum, some don't. The um, I'm actually planting some here in Phoenix of the uh, Senegalis, which is the kind that gives off the gum. I don't. My goal is to harvest my own gum. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> I've, I've done it in um, in uh, Ethiopia before. You basically uh, you scar the tree, so you create a little like tap in the tree, almost as if you were doing maple syrup. And if you come, and you come back months later, there'll be a ball there of sap. Wow. And you simply knock it off, and that's a piece of acacia gum. Well, let me ask you from this angle: What would be the earliest paper that had the gum strip on it that you can? think of like what would be one of the er- one of the earliest ones like around was it the 19th century was it earlier than that yeah. no it was 19th century is what i've seen i've smoked rolling papers from the 19th century that had a gum line that didn't work anymore they were from about um i think 1880s but regardless it's it's hard to know like, this is the problem with history yeah everybody writes their own history yeah <laughs> And the interleaving method that you were talking about earlier that you mentioned, uh, that's what, we're so familiar with it today. That's where the process where the pa- each paper in a packet is folded so that it links to the next paper. Um, and so who innovated that? Because some people claim online that it was ZigZag and that they actually got their name from the, from the yeah, fact ZigZag, that they patented that design. Yes. Now, ZigZag did the first horizontal interleaving where you pull one out and the next one's ready for you like that. There was interleaving. It's my understanding that Saul David Modiano also had some patent from Italy, which predates the um, the zigzag patent. This is just what I'm told by the, a certain guy at a certain mill that Saul David made the first actual interleave. But his pulled out vertically, meaning the, the sheets pulled out, but they, they were folded in the center, uh, like in the middle, whereas zigzag is folded in a way where you can pull it out and use it right away. The other ones you would have to refold right afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Imagine being pull, you're pulling it out, it's folded in a different direction wow so but again building on top of building on top of building some of the innovations i've seen from alcoy one of the greatest rolling paper man that ever lived was was um was in alcoy i always wish i could well i'm still trying to get his apartment right now his apartment's um for rent and that's jose laporta jose laporta supposedly had over 500 patents for different rolling paper creations and ways wow. to make rolling paper and improvements on ways of making rolling paper and in my belief, 
he was the greatest rolling paper man that ever lived. And you haven't even mentioned him or studied him. Wow. See, that's one of the things, though. Again, it's the victors. The victors always, you know. But Jose Laporta, he was he was more about um, trying to make the absolute best. That was his thing. So he would make these beautiful factories with like artistic columns and designs on the inside and soaring ceilings in order to and put them in places with great views just to get the workers to be inspired to make the best they possibly could make. Wow, that sounds amazing. So what were his big innovations? His big inventions were things like um, new ways to basically ways to improve the paper itself in order to reduce grammage and porosity. He was really big on reducing porosity and making the paper more consistent and smooth in every sheet. His whole mantra was always about perfection. So even to this day, like um, like that mantra stays within uh, within Alcoy. So it's a thing of like, you know, do you know, you know what porosity in a paper is? Yeah, porosity. I understand what that is. Yeah. All other things being equal, the basis weight, everything is the same. The thing that's going to determine whether your rolling paper is fast burning or slow burning is the porosity. It's basically um, the easiest way to think about how permeable the rolling paper, how much air can pass through it. Now, it isn't really um, uh, permeability. It's really porosity, which is a little different. But just think about it as air going through, just no different than a mask that we all wear nowadays. The easier it is for air to pull through the paper, the faster it's going to burn. And it can be incredibly significant. The, it's more important than weight. So like a thinner paper and a thicker paper, that's important, but not as important as porosity. And uh, Jose Laporta really perfected um, reducing porosity through um, sizers. We call them sizings. Um, by adding these, uh, basically, it's an additive during the paper process. He, he perfected it either by doing that or by um, just actually processing the paper in a different way, um, beating it down more, cooking it more, adding more caustic soap, basically caustic soda, which is soap, uh, during the cooking process of the fibers. And he was able to, uh, through all of his different processes, get it down to a much less permeable paper that burned nice and slow. Interesting. So what time period was he around in? He's 1800s into early 1900s. And what was his paper companies? Like, what was his main ones? Yeah, El Sol. El Sol, yeah. El Sol, yeah, yeah, okay. That was, that, was, that was his biggest brand. Yeah. Um, and that was just, you know, he, was, he really was all about making the absolute best. Yeah. So he's my favorite. When I, throughout all the history of all the rolling paper men that ever lived, He's the one I look up to the most. Wow. Well, I will definitely delve into him. I'll look him up online. Yeah, his full name is Jose Laporta Valor. Okay. I will definitely check him out. Um, uh, what about the flavored papers? I have in my records that it was 1906. Rizla was the first one, and they made like strawberry and menthol or something like that? No, it was earlier than that. Um, flavored rolling papers have been going around since the, um, since the 1800s. They, uh, and actually, the earliest uh, smoking of tobacco, they used to, the ancient Mayans would flavor their tobacco with reeds. So like the process of flavoring has been around for a very long time. The original rolling papers that were flavored were actually made from uh, fruit fiber. And uh, we're talking, I think, early 1800s. I've seen, um, I've seen evidence of this. I've never actually gotten one of the papers. But we're talking of, you know, now there's also a difference between, between flavored papers and flavored, and the papers were actually made out of these fruits. So the papers were made out of the fruits, which go way back may not have actually had that kind of flavoring to it. it might have just been a fruit uh, paper. I know that like um, Jose Laporta did flavored papers and he would have been late 1800s as well. And then also, so um, 
what other innovations included obviously the different formulations for the papers uh obviously there's yes. a lot of different materials that have been used uh hemp rice uh straw all kinds of different uh materials and i know that risla changed their name from lacroix to risla plus when they switched over to rice paper right because riz is the french word for rice and the LA plus is short for La Croix because Croix is the French word for cross. What can you tell us about rice paper? It's not actually made from rice, right? Yeah, it's a style of paper. It's always, it's um, the way it's always been. The rice paper itself has, was historically made from um, the rice plant, not the plant that actually gives off rice, but it's like the um, it's a Asian plant that's similar, but it doesn't actually give off rice the kind of you eat. And but nowadays, for the past let's say hundred years, it's been it's a style of paper that basically pays homage. You're trying to make it just like that. For it to be an actual rice paper, um, it needs to be white and translucent are the two most important factors for a rice style paper. Not clear, but a rice style paper has a particular look and burn characteristics to it, and that's how we judge it. Okay. It's just like kind of misleading because when you hear rice paper, I think most people probably assume it's made from the same thing that rice is made from, but it's, but it's not. No, it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's a particular, it's a, it's, it's a particular style of paper. And you, I mean, there's grades of it, but you, but um, to make it right, it needs to be, it needs to pass certain, it needs to pass muster, but it's not actually made out of like the rice that you eat. Yeah. So what were the original rolling papers made from? The earliest rolling papers were often made by leftover linens, like rags, and hemp, cotton sails, anything that was available. The, what I've seen through photographs is a lot of times you would have these hemp ropes that were used, and hemp sails, used to sail the boats across the Atlantic. And they would then, each after a, a, a return journey, the sail is spent, and they would take it down and turn it into paper. You would also take leftover rags, anything like this. And there were different levels of paper. You're either just making paper itself or you're making rolling paper. When you knew that you were making rolling paper, you would try to use more pure materials. Like the, but even then, you could use the hemp sails and ropes. And you would essentially put them in the bottom of the factory where you get them wet and literally let them rot until they start to break down on their own. And then you take them and you put them in the baton. The baton is this giant hammer that would come down and mash them. Mash, 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 mash. And you're basically mashing them back into pulp. And then you take that pulp and you can use that now to make that into paper. Now, to, back then, you might add things we wouldn't add nowadays. But you would add different things to try to get it into more of a um, more pliable. You would mix it up in what we call basically a bathtub with a mixer. And you would then spread it out onto screens and dry it on the screens and then pull it off the screen. And that's your paper. That was how it was done originally before the continuous machines. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. The continuous machines because it changes and changes. Oh, man, there's so many innovations that have happened over the years. Yeah, and then so then eventually the other materials started to get when you know like as far as rice, rice, straw, flax, uh, and then and then eventually and I don't know when this started, but I know it was a big craze when I was at High Times years ago. Was suddenly had all these clear cellulose papers and everybody yeah. wanted the clear papers. What you know what what's what's that about? Did you uh, when did that come? Oh, out? I know all about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We even made some. So the clear papers, now that you can make it out of different things. You can make it out of what we call Asiatic cotton mallow, which is a very nice pure material. And essentially, you're, that's, a, that's a great way to go because it's going to be very low in certain lead and things like that. But then you could also make it out of uh, wood. 
Now, in Brazil, they were making it out of eucalyptus. And what you're essentially doing oh. is you're taking um, plants, plant fibers, uh, cellulose, plant cellulose. You're giving it a severe acid bath, breaking it down. And if, when you break it down enough, when you really process the daylights out of it and bathe it in acid enough, it literally turns clear. Now, you're going to have to add some kind of humectant because the cellulose would be like a powder in your hand. You have to take this and you add something like um, glycerin to, just to get it to be more pliable. And then you spread it out into sheets just like you would with paper and you end up with an early form of um, plastic. You know, when you hear the word cellophane, cellophane is meant to if the original stuff before we had plastic was made out of cellulose like this. So essentially what you're doing is you're bringing back a really old way of making cellophane. Wow. <laughs> and that's what those papers are. That's wild. That's pretty wild. Yeah, and that's why when you lick them, they absorb your moisture. It's the, it's the humectant in there. It's the glycerin that's going to absorb your moisture and sticks to itself. You don't even need gum with them. It's a very interesting paper, but, you know, they taste pretty strong. So I'm not, I'm not the biggest fan of them, but they're really cool. Yeah, it seemed to be they kind of cool. a flesh-in-the-pan novelty kind of thing. Like, I'm sure there's still yeah. people that use them, but uh, it was real big for a while. Everybody was using them, and then they kind of died off. They did. They totally did die off. Yeah, there's so many different materials that you can use. I, I um... I've learned over the years there's so many I, there's some that taste better than others and trying to select the exact right thing for a paper is a big deal. Most people when they're when you see all these brands of rolling papers, a lot of them, not all of them, of course, a lot of them are just people buying someone else's paper, sticking their name on it. No, no different than a lot of other things we do in life, you know. But it's um. But then you have the few of us that really take the time to either make or have made our own paper, where you're really specking it. You're specking it down to the minutia detail to try to get it exactly the way you want it so it'll burn the way you want because you're trying to elevate people to a whole other level. And those are the guys who I love the most. <laughs> cool, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Certain materials burn much different than others. And yeah. I've tasted some papers that are absolutely horrible, and I've tasted some ones that are really good. And my hope is I wish that everyone made papers that were really good, but uh, some make good ones, some make don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to take another quick uh, commercial break, but we'll be right back with more from Josh from Raw here on Canthropology. All right, and we're back here on Canthropology. Uh, my guest this episode is the founder and CEO of Raw Rolling Papers and a rolling paper historian, uh, probably the most prominent one that I that I am aware of, uh, Mr. Josh Kesselman. How you doing, Josh? Good, doing great. So um, uh, I'd like to talk now a little about, uh, you know, uh, the 60s, because, uh, you know, up until that sure. point, we should note that the vast majority of rolling papers were used, at least in Europe and the U.S., uh, for tobacco cigarettes. Um, I know for, I know that the indigenous people of Mexico began mixing cannabis and tobacco as early as like 1850s or so, but the target market for rolling paper industry, um, I guess you could say officially or unofficially shifted dramatically, started to shift in the 60s and 70s with the birth of the counterculture um the popularity of of smoking marijuana skyrocketed across uh you know america and europe and and such and the hippies really embraced cannabis as part of their culture and some rolling paper companies it seemed like embraced them back i know that uh in in 69 zigzag launched their big captain zigzag wants you marketing campaign and uh, the zigzag man ended up being used the image you know in all kinds of rock concert uh, posters and and protest flyers and stuff um, most famously, probably by the um, 
Artist Stanley Mouse and Alton Kelly used uh, the Zigzag Man in their poster for Big Brother and the Holding Company's uh, legendary performances in 1966. We actually have an original of that poster uh, signed in our museum collection, which is pretty cool. Um, but also, uh, it was also used, uh, and I'm sure you're aware of this as a, as a rolling paper collector, that one of the earliest uh, cannabis advocacy groups, a group called Amorphia, who were based in the Bay Area, they started producing and selling uh, Acapulco gold rolling paper packets to help fund their activist efforts. Are you aware of that? I, 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 the way I'm aware of it, I've seen Acapulco gold. I have a pack in my collection, but it, to me, it would look like it was made by somebody else based on the markings on the pack. Well, they actually were produced also in Spain. Um, I don't know exactly which company they worked with to do them, but this was uh, they were produced uh, for this group, Amorphia, uh, who later uh, melded into West Coast Normal and, and were, you know, kind of uh, absorbed into Normal. Um, but it was a very uh, famous uh, early cannabis activist group, uh, and they used these papers. They would sell these packets of papers and use the funding to you know to to fund their activist efforts so that i think that was like a, a... See, I, I had no idea about any of that the, the funniest ones i've seen from the 60s because a lot of the work are hilarious were like the draft card rolling papers or burn the american flag <laughs> there, there were some really funny ones from the 60s but something i, I learned from um basically mr burton of robert burton associates which was one of the guys from um that made like easy wider rolling papers mm-hmm. and some of the other things he explained to me that um josh you know not a person who smokes cannabis is only going to smoke like maybe a joint every few days, you know, but a guy who's smoking cigarettes, he's going to smoke 16 of them a day come rain or shine. So he was always trying, he was always explaining to me that even though people thought the biggest market was always cannabis, the biggest market by far has always been tobacco, even for some of the funny papers. Sure. So yeah, it's just a matter of consumption level. I guess a third of a paper compared to 16. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Um, it's, it's uh it's dramatic so a lot of the companies even if they even if some of the smaller ones like you're talking about went after the cannabis market like that the biggest market for rolling papers has always been tobacco smokers because these people are literally smoking like you know a zillion times more (laughs) you know you know what i mean of course it's um of course and you know the problem with going after the cannabis market for the rolling paper companies is obviously that then you get classified as paraphernalia which is illegal in a lot of states and other countries and opens you up to all kinds of possible criminal liability. I know that you faced uh, some of your own legal issues uh, in that regard in 2009 uh, during the Obama administration after the passage of the Smoking Prevention Act. And you actually sued the FDA, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I, talked to, I took the FDA to, to federal court. They really were pissed. You know, they added me to the federal watch list over that. They're just so mean. Um, like, <laughs> yeah. Rather than fight it, like my, our whole thing was, the law does not say the flavored rolling papers are illegal, and we and we were willing to go to court to fight about it. And their whole thing was, Josh is a bad guy. You know what I mean? How dare him? He's a bad guy, bad man, bad, bad, bad man. It was just like, and we went to court like that, where we're sitting here arguing in front of the judge, and they don't have the right to say the stuff. This stuff is uh, illegal. It's not in the law. And their argument to the judge was, Josh is a bad man, bad, 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 bad man. And the judge got mad at them, really mad at them. Um, well, what did the law said that flavored tobacco products were illegal, right? Yeah, but it was it was very specific. It was, it was flavored tobacco, flavored cigarettes, and flavored roll your own tobacco were illegal. Yeah, it was very specific. It didn't so not they, the FDA then tried to change it to say that 
well, flavored rolling papers could be used to make flavored cigarette, and therefore they're illegal. The law was not products that might be used to, you know, it, it was very specific, and they were wrong. And um, uh, we basically, on the, on the third or fourth day of trial, uh, they um, basically capitulated the issue. And GCJs are still here today because their position was simply that all flavored rolling papers are illegal. And midway through the case, they turned to the judge and said, "Not all flavored rolling papers are illegal." So that kind of that was the end. Of the so case. was it dismissed, or did you win, or how did it turn out? It turned out where the judge ruled that because they capitulated the issue, there's no longer a case, there's no longer a matter at hand. So it was rules. dropped. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because they, they really, they, we walked in there with them saying that our okay, product was illegal, illegal, illegal. You're going to jail, prison, prison. They, they would say it in different ways like that. They wouldn't just say you're going to jail. Oh, you're going to jail, prison. You're going to be sentenced. They would just try anything to say words to try to scare you. Yeah. And you'd be like, okay, cool. Hmm. Uh, let's go talk to the judge about that. That's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not in the law. Yes. You know, we can use the full power of all the government authority against you. Like, great, cool. I guess flavored rolling papers. Yeah. But it, it, it's. It uh, it all worked out in the end. Like, juicy J's are still around. Yeah. Um, what's important to the FDA is that we don't market them for use with tobacco, which we do not. They're, it's so uh, funny because that's the opposite of what it always was, which was you have to say tobacco use only, not for weed use. Yeah. And with yeah, deals, it's the opposite, only. right? Yeah. Well, see, I'm in a different position because like our company, HBI, stands for Herbal Bar Industries, and we started off selling herbal smoking blends. And we probably still are one of, if not the num- number one, seller of smokable herbs, like uh, just non tobacco smokable herbs in America. We used to advertise it in High Times Magazine, all, these, all of our cool herbal blends, um, and for, for years. And we still do them to this day. We used to have brands of herbal cigarettes, but then the regulations made it impossible for them to continue because they got um, put into a basket with um, cigarettes where they have to be treated like cigarettes. The yeah. regulations. Made it impossible to continue them. But no, we have this whole herbal background. So for us to say that it's herbal use only is very easy for us because we sell herbs, you know? Yeah. I just think it's funny that like a lot of the companies, uh, Rolling Paper and other paraphernalia companies, went through this whole period where they were tobacco use only and trying to distance themselves from weed. And then it turned out that tobacco regulations end up catching up with them anyway, you know, from the other end. Yeah, tobacco regulations are a real thing. It's, yeah, it's it's a real strange world out there. Were there any rolling paper companies that you were aware of that were were against weed, like adamantly, that didn't want, like the idea that their papers were being used for cannabis, or they didn't yes. care? No, no, I was, I was, um, there was, uh, I, I've seen the some of the biggest rolling paper brands in America. They're still out there, um, very much argue that their products were only used with tobacco, and they were anti-marijuana. And they gave money to anti-marijuana organizations. That now they're trying, they try to pretend that never happened, but I was there. There's some mean people out there, man. That yeah. They just look at this as a way to make money. They don't. They don't give a fuck about anything but money, and, and it just makes it so hard because they're um, they'll do anything in the pursuit of it. You yeah. Know? Well, there's no thought of art, the art of paper, the art of rolling, the art of beauty, how to how to improve the process, how to be the best link in the chain you possibly. There's none of those kind of thoughts. Yeah. It's just how do we make more money? Yeah. Well, I know that some rolling paper companies did embrace uh, cannabis culture. Uh, Bamboo and Easy Wider, for example, were some of the earliest advertisers in high times back in the 1970s. And some of the more prominent artists uh, back in the day also embraced uh, rolling paper branding as part of as part of the counterculture. 
part of the the impact of rolling papers in the culture is obvious as far as like 1972 Cheech and Chong's famous second album Big oh, Bamboo yeah. which with yep. the cover of which was designed to look like a giant rolling paper package and they even had a giant rolling paper a real one in the album Wait 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 okay I got a, I got knowledge for you from that at least from the ones that we've got and the stories that we've been told yep. the paper that's inside is not actually a rolling paper no, it was it was a mock rolling paper. People used it anyway as a rolling paper, <laughs> but it was actually just a piece of paper. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. With a with a with bamboo like watermarks printed on it, not actually not an actual watermark. And people just were so excited, you know, they thought it was a rolling paper and they used it. And it was like, oh no, no, don't ever use that. It was just meant to be a mock. Yeah. But yeah. At least this is the stories are worth told. And, wow. Wow, that's that's yeah. interesting. Um, also, uh, obviously, uh, twenty years later, hip hop icon Dr. Dre did something similar for his debut album, The Chronic. Uh, his, yeah, with the zigzag. Man. Yeah, the that cover cool. features a portrait of him. It looks like you know it's inspired, obviously, by the zigzag logo. Well, Dr. Dre's album came out in what was that ninety uh, two? I think uh, it wasn't too much longer after that that you first uh, came up with. Uh, you started coming up with the concept of raw. Um, I read online somewhere that you started the company with just $500, and it's now worth like an estimated $42 million, which is absolutely incredible, man. I, I, I just I can't even get over that. Um, so I'd just like to say uh, to you that for, for the majority of my 20-plus years uh, working at High Times, Raw were always our go-to rolling papers uh, and have remained my go-tos in the years since. Uh, the purity, uh, the smooth, clean burn have really just kind of set the standard to beat in the modern era of the industry. So, uh, so kudos for 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 that man um and, and Thank you. Like, really the goal is like i, I sorry to interrupt you yeah. i want to make it clear to you like um because of the history of rolling papers because of my studying and understanding it and the way that it is in alcoy with you're just surrounded by history and so many of the people that make the rolling paper there are multi multi multi-generational all been making rolling paper you're you're look you look at it differently you're not looking at it as a lifeless product you don't look at it as even if as even if you're that important what you're trying to do is you realize that you are just a little link in a giant chain and you're trying to be the best link you possibly can be. So our goal is always to make the absolute best rolling paper that's ever been made in the history of mankind because that is part of being an Alcoyano. That's part of this of the mentality is you're just trying to bring it. And then the person after you does the same thing and the person after you does the same thing. And you understand that you, it's a goal. You'll never get there. But if you really tried, if you really gave it your all, if you managed to have some good innovations and really elevate it, then you add it to the craft. And when you're gone, if you're really good at it, then you are like Jose Laporta, where you get a statue in one of the circles of Alcoy. And that is the greatest honor that can be bestowed upon you. And if I'm really lucky, I'll get one of those. I really want one. I know I want one. (laughs) You don't get it until you're dead. Yeah. Oh, they know man. I really want one. That's I'm, great. Hey, come on, guys. That's 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 goals. That's fucked. You can't go any further than that. <laughs> For sure, you man. Know? I, I mean, I I think you're certainly worthy of it. Uh, hopefully, I'll we'll we'll live to see that happen. Well, maybe you won't live to see that happen sure. because well, let me but... tell you a little bit of the history of rolling paper so you understand. What we've all learned is it's small things that make huge differences. If you treat it like a lifeless paper, where it just comes out of the mill and you take it, stick it in a booklet, and there's some gum on it, that that's it, you're you're not even close. It's the tiniest things, the smallest nuances that can make that paper burn a little bit better or not at all. <laughs> you know, run like um like Usain Bolt. <laughs> it's um it's not just you don't just have to make the best watermark. You have to you have to impress that watermark in such a way that it's as impressed as it possibly can be. 
You're doing so many little small changes. You're trying to reduce something called one-sidedness of the paper or two-sidedness of the paper to make it more, where it's more similar on both sides. Because I don't know if you know this, when you make paper, there's something called a rough, a rough side, which we call the wire side. And there's a smooth side. Oh, that's my plane. And there's a, um, a smooth side called the felt side. And you're trying to make it where both sides are similar enough for the consumer. So there's small changes you can do to the paper to make it where both sides will feel similar. And I don't know how anyone, I don't know how many other people do these small little nuanced changes that we do. Yeah. But we're really trying to bring it, man. Yeah. I love my damn statue in Alcoy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say, man, uh, what I'm most impressed is by is not just your entrepreneurial acumen and financial success, but also the integrity behind what you do and what, how you've chosen to spend a, a big portion of those profits. So I know you have the Raw Foundation, which does a lot of good work. Can you have you have a minute to tell us real quick about Raw Foundation sure. before we you go? It, sure. We call it Raw Giving because that's really what it is. And essentially what we do is we, you know, people say they give back, but most of the time it doesn't really mean anything. We have a goal and the goal is to save as many lives as we possibly can before we go. At first the goal was, my gosh, we can save a hundred lives. And then it was, and we managed to knock that out of the park using, using these incredible, these water well projects. And then we were like, okay, let's save a thousand lives. And we managed to, managed to exceed that. Then it was okay, 10,000. And we exceeded that. Then it was like, okay, 25,000, which I'm pretty sure we've steamrolled right past. So now the goal is to save 100,000 beautiful human beings before we go. Now, it seems like a, an enormous amount. How could one company or one person, one group, save 100,000 human beings? But it's actually really easy to do. When you have the resources and the right connections, it's all about water. In places we go in Ethiopia, the people simply do not have access to clean water. So they're dying of waterborne illnesses. And it costs so little for us to do a good water project. And we've gotten so good at it now, better and better and better and better, that we can impact more and more people. We can pump water uphill now with solar pumps. We were never able to do that in the beginning. It was just hand pumps. And so now we've been able to give so many people access to clean water. We've done, I believe, at this point, we've done all seven of the hospitals for Mother Teresa in the Ethiopia region. Wow. Um, they're called the Sisters of Mother Teresa um, Ministries of Charity, but they're really, they're basically hospitals of last resort for the poorest of the poor, and they don't have access to clean water. Well, we, <laughs> the whole story, which would take me an hour to explain to you, <laughs> we ended up being basically the, the people that are, in, we gave them their water. It was us. And I say us, that means me, you, all of us together, David Harding on the ground with Water is Life Ethiopia, Everyone working together and just caring was all was really needed. It cost, you know, it cost what it cost. We've given these things have cost probably in millions of dollars overall. But think about it, man. With a couple million bucks, when you're actually saving tens of thousands of human lives, it ain't shit, right? Yeah. So the cool thing I've learned about this, this is the cool thing about having experience in life, is a zillion years ago when the feds came at me and they tried to take everything away from me and all that shit, you realize you want to do things that you leave behind that no one can ever really take from you. So when you're doing water well projects in Ethiopia and doing all these kinds of things, you realize that no one can take this from you, man. Ain't no one going to go confiscate Mother Teresa's well. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, Bet man. they teach that thing. So you're do if you, I could lose it all and end up living under a bridge, and I still would know that all this stuff actually happened, and it only happened because of all of us, which is fucking beautiful, I think, man. Yeah. And so it all, makes me feel good. It motivates me to keep working. and. That's the important thing. It makes our people happy. It makes everybody smile. And, it, and hopefully I left a beautiful fucking impact on this incredible planet. And with that, I have to go catch a plane to <laughs> uh, go to Alcoy and make more paper. Because <laughs> I got to make this new one I'm trying to produce, which is very difficult. And I have to be there myself to try to do the final touches on it. 
All right. Well, right on, man. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you again. It's been for my taking, pleasure. To talk to you, and it's been an honor. Taking time out of your schedule to educate us about the history of rolling papers. We appreciate it. I wish you safe travels and continued success. Take care, man. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me again. It's been so nice talking to you. I know we haven't talked in a while. I miss you, man. You freaking rock. I hope <laughs> to see you again soon. <laughs> Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was certainly an enlightening and enjoyable conversation. Uh, who knew rolling papers were so interesting, <laughs> right? Anyway, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of Canthropology. For more information on the World of Cannabis Museum Project or to read our Canthropology blog, please visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. If you'd like to contact us, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click the subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A quick shout out to our great media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Leaf Magazine. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed the episode, and I hope you will join us again next time for another edition of Canthropology. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history. <laughs>